I can't even fucking talk to you. Hello and welcome to episode 20 of Double Reel, the podcast that brings support and comfort to film nerds around the world. It's December 2021, and in no time at all we'll be up to our necks in festive food and alcohol, and wondering if it's safe for relatives to visit. Except for members of the Tory party, who'll be having a massive party in Downing Street and snorting coke off Boris Johnson's man boobs. Either way, we're here to help you get through it all with a generous helping of cinematic content. My name's James Adamson, and I'm an ordinary member of the public with no standing in the media or the film industry. What I do have is a geeky love of film and obscure stories from the world of cinema, and a lot of opinions. Joining me on the podcast is my co-host, also called James Adamson. Welcome, James. Thanks for that lovely introduction. It's good to be here. Um, socially distanced, of course. No no parties. Very good. We aim to provide an old-school film-goers experience. This is the podcast equivalent of the monthly film magazines you used to buy in the newsagent, packed with a range of features from the world of film. Each episode is divided into two reels, with an intermission so you can refuel and refresh before you tackle the second half. If you want to comment on the podcast or with your thoughts on the world of cinema generally, you can reach us on Twitter on at Double Real Film. There's also an Instagram account called Double Real Podcast and a Double Real Podcast Facebook page for you to follow if you're that way inclined. Here's what's coming up in episode 20. First up, there's a roundup of a month in the life of two busy film nerds with some film news, a final look at how we lived up to our film-related resolutions for 2021, and a look at some of the notable films we watched since the last episode. Then it's time for Classics and Recommended, where we try to get away from our endless diet of TV repeats and instead get round to watching something from our backlog of great films we haven't seen yet. This month we're discussing the Howard Hawks noir classic The Big Sleep. Our hidden gem feature draws your attention to a lesser known film that deserves a wider audience, which this month is Joe Dante's underrated dark children's film Small Soldiers. Then we turn to the one that got away and look at a tall tale of a potentially great film a top director tried and failed to bring to the big screen. For episode 20, we're looking at Oliver Stone's unrealised Martin Luther King project. We close the first reel of this episode with the remake Hate Watch, which this month looks at Sly Stallone's ill-advised attempt to fill the shoes of Michael Caine in Get Carter. After the intermission, the second reel of this episode will feature the big conversation, in which the Adamsons tackle a topic from the film world in more detail. In episode 20, we're asking how true are films based on true stories. But first, some messages from listeners, aka the podcast magazine letters page. We got a retweet from eminent film writer Anna Bogatskaya when we posted about Eve's Bayou last month. It was her podcast that alerted us to the film, and she replied to us saying, everyone should watch this film and then seek out Kelly Weston's beautiful writing about it, which is very exciting, a retweet from a proper film critic. Um, Paul also got in touch about Eve's Bayou saying it was a big snub for Journey Smollett not to win any awards. She played the main uh, girl in the film. Friend of the pod, Tony, got in touch about the film music feature we did in episode 18. I've been sitting on this for a bit. Sorry, Tony. Uh, very informative. I will overlook the slandering of Rick Springfield's Jesse's Girl. On film composers, I thought Clint Mansell was worth a mention, as his movie scoring career is so different to his earlier stuff. Also, between the original scores and tracks being used in films, there's a series of rap and metal collaborations done specifically for the film Judgment Night. The film is shite, but it's an amazing soundtrack album, a real one-off. Well, thanks for that. I'll have a look for it. On our Hidden Gems Small Soldiers, Shiraz says, Interesting you're saying this doesn't get the love it deserves. Almost everyone I know loves it. Stephen and Torrance agree. Tanner says, I still own it on VHS. It still stands up because they didn't overdo the CGI and used animatronics by the great Stan Winston. On our classic The Big Sleep, Andrew says, Love this film. Letterboxd is a great place to look for more great films from that era. Well, funny you should mention that, Andrew. We have some news on that front. On our one that got away, Oliver Stone's Martin Luther King. Brian says, 
I wish this had happened. Stone makes awesome films, even if he plays fast and loose with the facts sometimes. Keeler says, I think the problem is Oliver Stone has a tendency to be very controversial and sensational, which bothered Dr. King's family. The MLK film that did get made, Selma, didn't avoid the human side, and it may have been more acceptable to have an African-American director who shared their perspective. No, that might be true. On our remake Hate Watch, most people agree Get Carter was rubbish, but this from Paul, different Paul this time. Stallone's Get Carter is not a good movie, but it isn't terrible either. It is watchable for his type of movies. I've seen it ranked as the worst Stallone movie. What the fuck? It's better than the arm wrestling movie and any comedy he has tried. A sort of faint defense of Get Carter there. I also mentioned last night in Soho on the socials, and uh, I said the ending didn't make any sense, to which Scott said, I didn't have any problem with the third act. It made sense to me. Jorge said he's referencing Italian Jallo films, which tend to focus on style and atmosphere rather than narrative coherence. And Ben said, this film would have been better if literally any character had asked the right questions and the ending was awful. So kind of mixed response there. Some people liked it, some people less so. On our year of the Carpenter entry, The Thing, Sam says, hands down the greatest horror film of all time. It's absolute perfection. It's never been bettered and never will be. With you all the way, Sam. Thanks as always for your messages, even the ones we couldn't read out. Now on with the podcast. Now for our regular roundup of a month in the life of two busy film nerds. We look at any major film news that's breaking this month and how we've been getting on fitting in movie watching with our busy, exciting lives. As well as that, at the start of the year, we made some film-related New Year's resolutions for 2021, and we'll be checking in on whether we've managed to keep them up. As always, our mission is to give you a great discussion about films and film-related stories that will inspire you to watch something you haven't seen or have been meaning to see and contribute to a richer and broader cinematic experience. Just one piece of small uh, self-promotion for us. Um, our uh, other podcast, The Adamson's Verses, is up and running. Uh, we've just done The Adamson's Versus Nick Cage's Leopard Pajamas. We have a Christmas episode coming up, which should be out around about the same time as episode 20 here, called The Adamson's Versus the John Lewis Christmas Advert. We hope you look out for those, and we hope you enjoy them. So here we are in episode 20, James, closing out the year. So it feels like a little bit of a milestone. We've come a long way with the podcast. Um, mm-hmm. One thing I wanted to tell, uh, obviously you already know about it, but to, to tell the uh, the nice people at home is another development for the podcast is that we've set up a profile for Double Reel on Letterboxd. Um, it's just Letterboxd slash Double Reel. It's the social site for film fans. Um, I'll put up the address on our other socials like Facebook and so on so you can find it. On there, we've listed all the films we've mentioned or discussed on the pod uh, and films that are similar to or inspired by the films we've covered. You can also find ratings for the films we've watched, which tends to be a sort of blend of what I thought of it and what James thought of it. Our list of classic films we plan to watch in future, uh, so we don't have to read it all out on uh, on that segment. Uh, there's over 400 films on our list, so there's bound to be something different and interesting for you to watch. And um, every every month when we do a new episode, we'll do some lists for you know each episode that you know list the films we've watched. So it's a good place to just go and. You know, if, if something caught your ear that we were talking about and you fancy watching it, there'll be details on there. It's uh, And there's lots of other good stuff for you to, to follow on there. Um, other than that, um, this is where we normally tackle uh, the news. Uh, has anything caught your eye, James, in uh, in recent events? Um, I don't know, has it? I mean, that Alec Baldwin thing's mental still. Somehow got got even crazier. I did see a headline there, but I'm not sure. I mean, what was it you saw that kind of blew your mind on that a bit? He said that he didn't fire the gun. Oh, yeah, that. You you know, there's a couple of people that have corroborated that account that were on the set. 
And that doesn't seem to make sense, except the only thing I was thinking of is that they're using old replica firearms. I think they were trying to use kind of um, firearms that were kind of, uh, some of them might have been antiques and some of them might have been uh, sort of replicas that are effectively what the, um, uh, you know, designed like they would have been uh, using back in the, the, the 19th century because it's a Wild West film. And it's possible they had some, you know, like, cracked, faulty old guns that, that misfired. And that's possibly why it went off, even though no one pulled the trigger. Because there might have been old, knackered guns. Because hmm. you're, you're not talking about a Glock 9 that's got a proper safety catch and everything. It's just come out of the box, you know? Yeah. No, that, that did just, that kind of... It is weird. Anyway. I think it's one of those... I, I think when they complete the investigation, we're going to find all sorts of strange stuff. I mean, I can, just, I can only assume that investigators are going to have to inspect the firearms and, and see if they can reproduce any of the things that happened, you know, but it, yeah, it is. It, there's little tidbits keep getting, um, uh, uh, introduced that seem a bit strange, don't they? Yeah, it's, um, it's gonna, I think it's going to be quite a long haul, this one, but yeah, other than that, I've not seen much movie news of you. One or two little bits. Um, we previously discussed, um, Alejandro Jodorowsky's Dune on the one that got away in a previous episode. Um, and the remarkable film that they had planned, which would have been really kind of strange and unusual. Well, there's a lot of storyboards and designs done for that film, um, you know, in the, in the pre-production. Although well, they never went anywhere, someone preserved all of them, and all the old storyboards and paintings and pictures from that have just sold at auction for nearly $3 million. I thought that was quite an interesting sort of snippet. So some, some proper wealthy film geek has got some proper memorabilia there. Um, other than that, it's kind of... Um, just news about films that are coming out, really. Um, uh, David Cronenberg's just finished uh, filming his new film. It's called Crimes of the Future. It's going to be out sometime next year. It shares a title, but apparently nothing else, with an early experimental film he did. But he is apparently getting back to his old body horror and dystopian sci-fi roots, which I'm very excited about. Some of his films are a, a tough watch, but he's a brilliant, brilliant director, so there's that coming out. Uh, Steve McQueen announced probably about a month ago, and I think we just missed it for our previous recording, uh, he's shooting a new feature film called Blitz. No further details, although some sources have said it would be a thriller, but I'm, I'm not sure about that. But that's his new film. It's called Blitz. Um, he's recently been focusing on TV projects, but we've got him back on the big screen now, so we've got a new Steve McQueen movie coming. Nice. Um, I thought this was interesting, given some of the topics we've discussed on previous podcasts about diversity and you know fairness and everything in films, is that Netflix has got a new film coming out, Don't Look Up. Um, and Jennifer right. Lawrence and Leonardo DiCaprio were the main stars. Oh, yeah. And Jennifer Lawrence sort of gave an interview where she said she's being paid slightly less than DiCaprio. I think he's getting paid $25 million. She's getting paid 20 They're both getting paid very well. But she, she kind of said that she felt that that slight disparity in pay was fair because he's a bigger box office draw than she is. Um, which I thought was interesting. I mean, because that must play a part in like, you know, how, you know, sought after certain actors are for films, right? Even though Netflix isn't, box office is a bit of a, a moot point for Netflix, right? Because it's not going to be shown in the cinema that much. But I thought it was interesting that a woman would say, you know, in some, you know, she, she got paid more than Chris Pratt for Passengers. Um, so I think what she's saying is sometimes another person gets paid more than you because of other commercial factors that maybe are fair. So, um, I thought that was an interesting take on it anyway. Yeah, no, that is interesting. Um, she also kind of kicked up a fuss with the whole pay inequality thing back in, was that 2015? Yeah, possibly. She was, yeah. She, but that, my whole kind of 
view on that was if you're a bigger box office pool, then you get paid more for it. It was more the case of things like in um the the Avengers when Robert Downey Jr. is getting paid fifty five million and reportedly people like um Jeremy Renner are getting paid something like four hundred thousand. Yeah, well, Robert Downey Jr. is obviously Iron Man and the star, but that that's some kind of disparity there. But if she's, if I don't understand her point of view on the pay gap, if she's she understands that men are typically in general bigger box office pools in Hollywood, and what needs to change is that they need to have a kind of attitude shift where women can also be the lead and the draw to the cinemas as well. Jennifer Lawrence is a big star in her own right, but Leonardo DiCaprio is Leonardo DiCaprio, and he's probably you know. I mean, the Revenant made all that fucking money purely because he was in it. Yeah, I mean, that's so, the thing. I mean, he he extended um, Martin Scorsese's decade by about 15 years, or 10 years anyway, because Scorsese knew he could get $100 million budgets for his kinds of film if he had DiCaprio in the lead, right? Yeah. I mean, if, if if we take what Jennifer, Jennifer Lawrence is saying at face value, basically there are circumstances where she thinks it is a piss take for someone to get paid more than her, and sometimes she thinks it's fair. Right. So maybe that's all right. Maybe the time she was complaining, she you know, pe- she was complaining about being paid less than people who she didn't think were any a bigger draw than her. And maybe this time she you know thinks it's fair when it's when it's Leo, right? Yeah. Okay, and it's interesting. Um, the, the Marvel and, and DC stuff is interesting because you know I remember them saying, um, what was it, uh, Gal Gadot only got paid like half a million for her first um, uh, uh, outing as Wonder Woman. Uh, and when people commented on that, what actually came out was that Henry Cavill got paid a similar amount, and maybe even slightly less, for his first Superman film. Because what they tend to do is they say, look, we won't pay you that much for the first film. There might be some like profit participation. But, you know, if the film goes well and we make another one, you, you'll you'll get a good fee for the second film. And that seems to be something they do with the uh, um, with the, the superhero films. So it's possible that Jeremy Renner only got paid 400k the first time around. If he was still only getting paid that, you know, when it was time for, like, Endgame, he, yeah, he might have a genuine grievance, you know. Yeah, maybe an interesting discussion. Yeah. So yeah, th- th- that's with the news I found. I didn't see any other articles. On the whole, it is films are being made and, and will be available to watch soon, which is, I mean, it's good good enough for me, right? I, that's the kind of news I want to hear. Yeah, no, good to hear. So other than that, it's about you know what films are coming out soon. Uh, chip in if you've you know if you've got any films that are coming out that have caught your eye i'm focusing on stuff that's coming out in january because this uh, this episode is going to be released just before christmas i assume everyone's going to be taking some time off although round about christmas time i think there is a new spider-man film out other than that um on the 7th of january there's a new spy thriller called the 355 starring a bunch of uh sort of top line actresses jessica chastain lupita nyongo uh penelope cruz diane kruger 14th of jan the new scream film is out it's basically a sequel. It's basically Scream 5, but they don't, sequels don't bother with numbers anymore. That new Cyrano film we mentioned before with Peter Dinklish, Dinklage is coming out. Um, there's a film coming out that I'm only really mentioning it because it seems really odd. Um, and it's uh, it's called Memoria. It's a sci-fi starring Tilda Swinton as a Scotswoman traveling in Colombia, Colombia, South America. And it's directed by a Thai director. Okay. Um, so a guy from Thailand directing Tilda Swinton as a Scotswoman in South America. Um, just, I'm, I'm now fascinated to see what it's actually going to be about. She'll do a good job of that. She lives in Nairn. Yeah, she's, yeah, she's, she's a good actress as well. Um, so she's been around the Scottish accent for her, her living situation. This is a very 
ADHD side note. Her living situation is very weird. She's still married to her first husband, but she's now got like a much younger toy boy. But they still live together in the same house or something like that. In yeah, there. they have. I think they have some unconventional kind of relationship arrangements. Dirty. <laughs> we we don't judge. Yeah, I do. Joking. Dirty. Joking <laughs> apart. We don't judge. Um, Sesame Street the movie is coming out. Um, which, I don't know, that feels a little bit like when the, the new Muppets movies came out. It feels like their time might have passed a little bit, but, you know. Um, yeah. Operation Mincemeat is coming out. Um, this is the second film that's been made about the World War II operation that put fake details of the D-Day invasion on a dead body and washed it up on shore to make the Germans think we were attacking a different part of France. Um, this version is based on a book by a very good writer. I've read a couple of other things that he's done as well. Um I think the reason that a remake is justified is that when they did it back in the 50s, a lot of the information wasn't declassified about the mission, and now it is, so they can actually tell the whole story. Um, so that's going to be interesting. Um, towards the end of the month, Kenneth Branagh's um, semi-autobiographical film Belfast is coming out, about growing up in Northern Ireland. Um, Guillermo del Toro has a new film out called Nightmare Alley. Um, which is not going to be like a fantasy or supernatural film at all. Um, it's a, a, a period film noir set in like the 40s or 50s with Bradley Cooper. Um, so see what that's like. So Morbius is also coming out, which is like a, a, a Marvel film based, like a vampire film based on a minor Marvel character starring Jared Leto. I'm not totally sold on that summary, to be honest. I'm not, I'm not going to rush out and see that. He um, can't act anymore. Have you seen Jose Gucci? He's a weird guy. He's awful in that. And he was shit as the Joker. He can't act. I don't know how he won an Oscar. No, I, I, I don't like Jared Leto. I mean, he, he is not a selling point for any film. Um, that you know, for me, at all. Um, Have you seen House of Gucci yet? Yeah, yeah, we can come to that. Oh my fucking god! Anyway, <sighs> carry on. And there's one coming out towards the end of January as well. It's called Operation Fortune Ruse de Guerre. It's the new Guy Ritchie film about an actor hired to help a group of secret operatives protect the world from deadly weapons falling into the wrong hands. That is basically the plot of Team America. <laughs> um, so we'll see what that's like. So yeah, those are the films that are coming out. I don't know if there's any others that kind of caught your eye. I know the new... Um, uh, we mentioned that the new uh, version of uh, um, West Side Story is out pretty much now. Um, but other than that, we kind of wait until January for some of these, uh, some of these big new films to come out. Yeah. Now we come to what we've actually watched this month. So what, what have you been to see at the cinema this month, mate? Uh, House of Gucci. Yeah, well, let, let's talk about House of Gucci. Well, I went to see it. Um, so, yeah, I said to the missus, um, when I was seeing the Spider-Man, she was like, uh, so I made her watch the new Spider-Mans with Tom Holland. She was like, oh, yeah, they're quite good, they're quite good. And then I went to book tickets for it, and it turns out it's not until, like, the 15th or something, so I went, shit. So she really wanted to see House of Gucci, so we went to see House of Gucci. And um, mixed, a bit mixed for a bit about it. Um, yeah, I thought some of the performances were really good, and some of the direction was really good, and then the rest of it was pretty shit. Um, I still enjoyed it. I thought it was an interesting story, but it didn't need to be two hours and forty minutes long. It was yeah. That, I mean, that echoes a lot of people's criticism. That does. But yeah, Jared Leto really spoils it. He did no. It's like he did no preparation for this and play Mario. Like Super Mario sixty four kind of thing, um, like it, his performance is really, really, really bad. 
Now, I thought he was good in Dallas Buyers Club and was probably worthy of his Oscar, but I didn't realise it would be an, a complete and utter fluke. Um, I mean, he doesn't I, I haven't it. liked him in anything else. Um, i, I got to say, I'm, I, I, this is a really weird thing because I'm like you about Jared Leto. I really don't like him. But I kind of didn't mind him that much in this film. Really? I thought he was like... I thought he was, like, ridiculous, but there was something about it, maybe because I didn't see his face, because he's so covered in, like, ridiculous makeup, that it was just, like... It was odd, and it was his performance was sort of out of keeping with everything else, but I kind of... I was able to kind of gloss over a little bit, because I was enjoying the rest of the film. Yeah, no, I thought it was, like, ridiculous. I thought it was, like, it's a me, Mario, throughout the entire film. It was not good acting at all, and it was just... It's, he just says, boof loads and loads of times throughout yeah. the film it's ridiculous and I, I expect more from an Oscar winner and a, and a director like Ridley Scott to not have um, that kind of performance in his film that was really poor because every other performance in the film was really good Al Pacino's good um, Lady Gaga's incredible and Adam Driver again is good he totally changes from the kind of hapless guy at the start of the film to a kind of cutthroat businessman towards the end I thought the performances he, he turns into his dad doesn't he yeah, it's until, and, until right at the very end when he's he's back riding his bike um, with his bicycle clips on, and he seems like all, all the cares have been taken off his shoulders. But that bit yeah. where he's, I thought the arc of the film was very good because it starts out with Adam Driver and Lady Gaga. You know, she's going to make a decent living working in her dad's business, and he's no doubt going to make a decent living working as a lawyer. And they get together. He's not part of the you know the Gucci family anymore, or he's been you know going to be disinherited or whatever. And he's, you know, paying his way through law school by cleaning the trucks with the other guys. And they seem to be really enjoying life. And then they get caught up in the world of Gucci and running Gucci. And it, um, it's like the, um, the joy goes out of their lives. And I thought that was really, I thought their arc was really good because the longer it went on, the kind of colder they got, the, the, the sort of the warmth went out of their relationship with each other. Um, and, and then, you know, it, it, it kind of, Lady Gaga sort of hits this wall where suddenly she's, you know, this kind of big ambitious play she's made for Gucci has kind of not gone the way she wanted and she starts reacting and reacting and reacting. I thought that was really good. I, I don't think it was the film that people were expecting. I think a lot of people may be expecting a kind of really camp and over-the-top film. And I think maybe that's the film that Jared Leto thought he was making. But everyone else, <laughs> everyone else is making... I mean, it could have been a mob film. Do you know what I mean? I mean, there's not yeah. really much violence in the film. Um, but it's kind of... It's that... It's the family business. It's a rivalry for business. It's you know the you know disagreements between you know relatives get almost more personal than if they were just business colleagues. I thought it was really interesting the way Al Pacino was this lovely avuncular guy until you dare to challenge him on any aspect of the business, and then he turns really fucking nasty. Um, I thought you know the way Jeremy Irons represented how 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 you know the Gucci um, empire had become really sort of outdated and. There were a lot of things I really liked about it. I've got to be honest, the more I've thought about it since I've watched it, the, the more I kind of like it. But I I do recognise that there are things that other people weren't keen on about it. You know, that you know, it does have a long-running time. Jared Leto's performance could have... He's, he's, he's one of those people who, frankly, even when he doesn't do a terrible job in a film, I think anyone else could have done the job that he did and I would rather someone else had a go at it. Um, I didn't honestly didn't hate his, his 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 performance that much, but yeah, I could have done without him. If you see what I mean. Yeah, I just uh, if you, I 
don't know why he went to all the effort of having all the prosthetics when the prosthetics didn't even end up looking like the guy. So yeah, no, it's weird. I think he was just I think he was trying to hide behind the fact that he'd had so many prosthetics put on that he didn't actually have to give a performance. Um, but no, I enjoyed the film all, all in all, and it's really good. And I really hope Lady Gaga wins Best Actress instead of Kristen Stewart for Diana um, Diana Spencer because. Um, yeah, I mean she's been very good. I think there's a couple of other people who've done sort of big performances this year. It's going to be quite it's going to be quite a competitive category, I think. Um, but I thought Lady Gaga was terrific, and I think what's quite interesting is that she's kind of she's kind of the person packing them in. She's kind of the person that make make getting people to come and see the film. Uh, you know, she's, yeah. I know she's come from music, you know, more than acting, but she's actually the film's done the film's done okay at the box office, and and I think if you track how the box office overall is performing to you know to pre-COVID levels. This film would have made about $150 million pre-COVID. And right. if you look at the numbers it's doing now, it's doing okay, but it would have actually done really well. And I think Lady Gaga is a big part of that. She's not just good, but she's actually getting people to come and see the film. People want to see her. Um, so we might actually have another kind of, you know, sort of movie star in the making there. Well, she was very good in this. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't try, it's very good, they're all very, you know, most of the performances were good, yeah, I mean, I just, I think, definitely, I think Ridley Scott was trying to do a specific thing, and I think on the whole, he was trying to make a family drama, um, and I think sort of the glitzy side of the fashion side was, and the fact that Lady Gaga's in it was kind of how he got people in to see the film, and then when, once they watched it, he said, right, now, I'm going to, because I thought that the tone of the film was on the whole quite, quite, um, quite serious. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't, yeah. it wasn't playing any of it for laughs when you, you could have done or you could have camped it up a bit, set, you know, set in the fashion world. But yeah, on the whole, I enjoyed it. No, it was it was bonkers. It was great. Yeah. Um, just could have been done better in yeah. certain areas. Do you see anything else at the cinema? Uh, no. You? Yeah, I went to see uh, Last Night in Soho. No, I posted about it on, on the, the... Oh, the yeah, I didn't fancy that. I tell you what, for about two thirds of the film, I absolutely loved it. Um, it was really atmospheric. It's beautifully made, beautifully shot. It re- it captures sixties London really well. It captures the kind of dream world that the girl is in, where she kind of goes to sleep at night and dreams that she's back in London and she feels like what she's seeing is is real and not just a dream. Brilliant. It's very stylish. It does like have you know traits of Italian giallo in it and swing in London, and then it it kind of just completely loses its way. Um, the story depends on actors, characters behaving in completely illogical ways. There's a bit where a character kind of smashes a mirror and runs across it barefoot and it's covered in blood, which is a really giallo, it's a really Dario Argento look. And then the next day, that character isn't even limping. But <laughs> but it's not that character isn't even limping and now we're not sure if, if last night happened. It's just a continuity error. Um. And it's like this really carefully, like or, or not necessarily continuity error, but the writing just didn't care. They didn't care to follow up the threads of what happened in the previous scenes. And it, you know, there's a character played by Terence Stamp that suddenly acts in a strange way that doesn't make any sense. And all of a sudden, the dream sequences don't make any sense anymore. And then the whole film completely unravels. So, for two thirds of its running time, I was really loving it. Um, you would have to be into kind of horror jalo type stuff, um, and then it, and then it falls apart, in my humble opinion, uh, which is a shame. Um, it's got some amazing shots in it, some beautiful scenes, and then it and then it, it kind of loses it. It's a shame because Edgar Wright's usually really good with that. Yeah, and and I, I can't fault the I can't fault the quality of what he shot and how he shot it, but the story, um, the, the the final act needed a complete rethink. 
Hmm. No, I don't. I don't like horror at the best of times, so I didn't want to go and see it. Um, but you know, you know, we know in a film, whatever the genre, but especially horror, if, you, if you're trying to believe anything vaguely supernatural, because the idea is that she's dreaming stuff and it turns out to actually happen. So you've got to believe that somehow a message from the past is getting to her, and that atmosphere and that tone has got to be right, otherwise it just falls apart. Otherwise, it's like a comedy where they where they get the punchline wrong, you know, and it doesn't. <laughs> the film doesn't pay off, and that's a shame because I was hoping it was going to. Hmm, that's a shame. Other than that, I watched uh, Shang Chi, um, which was because it's available to stream now. Um, oh yeah, I missed it at the cinema. I watched, I watched it on streaming. Um, quite liked it. Thought it was pretty good. Yeah. Um, it was some of the elements of the film were kind of you know familiar. It's like father versus son, you know, you know straining under the weight of his like you know mixed family heritage you know because his dad's the villain of the piece um but yeah some good characters good dialogue funny stuff um the ending was obviously it had a lot of explosions and action and cgi but it kind of it, unlike black widow which felt like they just went oh sorry let's just have a big typical action climax this felt a bit more in keeping with the whole film i thought it was yeah. overall quite nicely done i'm my only sort of minor complaint, which often happens when there is a, when there are actors that you like in a Marvel film, but they don't get as much screen time as everyone else. The <laughs> villains and the father of Shang Chi is played by uh, a guy called uh, Tony Lung, and he's one of my favourite actors. And I don't think he gets as much to do as I would have liked. There's a few scenes, but he could have done more. And Michelle Yeoh is in it, and I kind of wish they'd given her a bit more as well. There's a few there's a few scenes of Michelle Yeoh doing Michelle Yeoh shit. Uh, but I, I wish I'd had more of that. Um, but I can't really complain. I did enjoy it. It's a good film. Um, the sister character probably is going to be more important in the next film than she was in this one. But otherwise, it's good stuff. It's all right. Yeah, it seemed like that and Eternals were kind of like just, yeah, films this year. Although Eternals got a bit more of a bashing. Yeah, I, I don't think they quite got. I think they got the. I think they. I think they got what they were trying to do a bit more right on this one. I think people have come back on Eternals and said, you know, like Mark Kermode, who I obviously love to reference, he said, you know, he said he's one hundred percent on board with a diverse cast and all of that progressive stuff. He has no problem with any of that, but he just felt like the film itself was a bit sort of um, lackluster, which mm. is which is about the writing and about the style and whether you, whether it, the film all hangs together. And I think Shang Chi hangs together. I think it was a. You know, if they make another one, I'll happily watch that as well. I'll, prob- I'll probably go out and see it at the cinema, actually, to go and see it. I was, I, to be honest, I was a bit marvelled out this summer, um, but if they do another Shang-Chi, I, th- I think I'll go and see it. Well, that's good. I didn't fancy it, but if it's free- available to stream, then yeah, I'll give it Yeah, up. it's on Disney+. Plus. It's, 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 a, it's a perfectly decent couple of hours. It's, I mean, I enjoyed it. I thought it was pretty decent. So, other than that, in terms of, you know, is there any new films you watch? Like, any, any new streaming things you watched? Or... Um... No, it has been a really busy month. I've yeah, had a lot of time to do things going yeah, on. Yeah. Um, so, so I guess it's about our resolutions then. And uh, our, our, your resolution, and this is the final month for this resolution for us both. Um, your resolution for this month was to try and you know, you know, get that balance between TV and film, and you know, watch a few more films than just TV shows. And even given everything you've said about uh, having a lot of other stuff to do, how did you get on in sort of general film watching? Um. Again, not great. <laughs> I've not really been on the old streaming services you, you, this you month. Did, you did say last month, didn't you, that your, your resolution's going to have to be, once you've got your living situation sorted, to watch all the films you've been hoping It's not even that. Finish the films that I've started. Yeah. So I've, yeah, not yeah, finished, yeah, yeah. I've not finished The Harder They Fall. I've got about an hour of that. I've still got about an hour of um, The Green Dragon, 
No, the Green Knight. The Green yeah. Knight. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's just a case of once it. That's basically what I've been doing for the past month, trying to get a new place sorted and bought and all that stuff. So yeah. just lots of running around, not watching films and doing adult shit. So yeah, yeah, no, it'll be it'll be all back. We'll have we'll have a we'll have Christmas off. Uh, although we'll end up watching our usual Christmas films. I'll watch Elf. I'll watch Galaxy Quest. Um, we usually end up watching Christmas Vacation. Um, Which one's that again? That's Chevy Chase. It's the one. Where, oh yeah. It's the one where he's got so many lights on his house that it kind of f- blows the fuse of the entire street, and his family comes around and they all, you know, it all kicks off. Um, it's, it's it's good fun. Um, okay, so my resolutions were there were two. Uh, one was to you know try and watch an old favourite that you hadn't seen in a while. Uh, and and the film I watched to, to meet that resolution this month was uh, was Heat, the uh, the Michael Mann heist film, which mm-hmm. I hadn't watched in years. I went to see it at the, the cinema back back at the time. Really liked it. Really enjoyed it. Over time, I've kind of I kind of reacted not hugely. I didn't, I didn't I didn't go off the film, but I kind of reacted to a lot of the reputation the films had over the years. Going, oh, this is the greatest crime film of all time, the greatest heist movie of all time, and I felt. Well, I really liked it, but is it that good? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I hadn't seen it in a while, and I stuck it on, and I have to say, I'm terribly sorry, I was completely wrong, it's not in the least overrated, it's a fucking masterpiece. <laughs> it was brilliant from beginning to end, I think, um, you know, just sitting down and watching it again, and kind of, there's a couple of good podcasts about it, you know, about the, the way he did it, and even, an, even frankly, even if I hadn't watched any of this podcast, just sitting down and watching it, and kind of seeing it all again. The way it's all put together, the, how beautifully done it is, how well put together all the characters are. The, the there's about three superbly done heists in the film. Great climax. It's fucking brilliant. I can't fault it. Um, so glad I watched it again. It's a good lesson, I think. To sometimes go, you know, you've had these opinions for years about films, which it's not that I didn't think Heat was a good film. I thought it was a terrific film, but I just thought, is it really the best of all time? And I'm, I'm, I'm having watched it again. I struggle to think of a better heist movie that's ever been made. Um, it's fucking brilliant I'm glad I watched it again okay uh, so, pretty um, resounding yeah, yeah. review it there two thumbs up if I had another arm it would be three thumbs up um, and so that's that's watching an old favourite um, and the other the other resolution was to make 2021 the year of the carpenter and now in December we come to the 12th and final film in, in this little series that I've done um, what I've been doing is uh, watching uh, sort of my 12th favourite um John Carpenter films in ascending order of their IMDb rating. Um, this takes us now to my favourite and John Carpenter's best and the highest rated uh, John Carpenter film on IMDb, which is The Thing. Um, now, I actually had the opportunity on Halloween night to go into uh, to London to the, uh, the the Prince Charles Repertory Cinema in Leicester Square and see this. Um, so I went to see it in the big screen with a with an audience, uh, which is that's frankly it's on one of my, my bucket list. Uh, things is to see the thing on the big screen and it was oh i'm so happy about it you know it's um the, the excitement of, of actually seeing this because I, I mean I, I would have i would have enjoyed it thoroughly if i'd stuck the video on because i've got that on the shelf at home but to actually go and see it in the cinema with, a, with a, a really packed crowd everyone you know full of anticipation um and uh on the big screen that is a serious intense cinematic experience in, in case there's anyone um uh, listening, who's not aware, the thing was a, a remake of a nineteen fifty one film called The Thing from Another World. It's about uh, a team of researchers uh, at a scientific outpost in Antarctica who uncover or who come into contact with uh, a creature which can disguise itself as an as anything and anyone 
and is, is essentially hiding in the body of someone on the station. It starts out hiding in one of the dogs, and then it's hiding in one of the people, and no one knows who, so they stop trusting each other. People start getting killed gruesomely with no idea what's going on. Uh, the tension and paranoia cranks up to the point that they have to carry out tests on each other to see who the, the, the real killer is. The whole thing goes absolutely, you know, full on. And it's just an absolute masterpiece of tension and horror. The gore effects are incredible. Um, watching it with an audience was really interesting because you've got all the big shocks, right? Everyone's like kind of, you know, you can see people's spines stiffen as the scares happen on screen. But it, it goes to show how well the film works that it got some really big laughs as well. Because there were a couple of tension-breaking moments or a couple of bits where like everyone's been tied up on the sofa because they don't know who the thing is. And it just has this moment where you look at these people all tied up next to each other on the sofa and the whole audience cracks up. And I think they needed to because the tension had been built up so much. It's like an, an opportunity to laugh was almost like gratefully like pounced on by this audience. And it's such a brilliant, brilliant film. And we've talked about it before that it actually had a an unfortunate effect on John Carpenter's career because despite being a brilliant film, his best film, possibly the best horror film of all time. It didn't do very well at the box office and was mauled by the critics when it came out and got him sacked from the next film that he was going to make. Instead of what should have happened, people saying, fucking hell, John Carpenter, I didn't know you had it in you. Please go and make any film you want to make. Um, so it really is in a, in a parallel universe somewhere, John Carpenter goes on and becomes the absolute kind of megastar of directing that he deserved to be on the back of the thing. But unfortunately, in our reality, this film didn't do that well. But it stands today as an absolute horror masterpiece and uh if you are based anywhere around london and you can get to the prince charles cinema they do periodically show john carpenter films they they sometimes show big trouble in little china over there as well next halloween they'll probably have more of his horror films there and if they can ever do the thing again i cannot recommend you highly enough um to um uh go and see it um it is a, an absolute belter of a film um now, what I've been doing each uh, each month with these uh, Year of the Carpenters, I'm also giving you an impromptu top 10 of films that are linked to it in some way. Um, obviously, because the thing is based entirely in a snowbound outpost in Antarctica, I thought I'd give you an impromptu top 10 of snowbound films. So other than the thing, uh, uh, my top 10 of films where for all of a significant part of the story, the characters are forced to operate in snowy conditions or are otherwise limited, restricted or trapped by snow. And this is my top 10 in no particular order. Uh, Misery, Snowpiercer, uh, The Hateful Eight, The Shining, A Simple Plan, Fargo, The Revenant, Groundhog Day, Dr. Zhivago, and Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Uh, again, quite an eclectic list uh, linked uh, by you know one characteristic, but I hopefully you'll enjoy uh, 10 films that are inspired um, by going to see the absolute classic John Carpenter's The Thing. So... This is the uh, the end of uh, the year of the carpenter. I'm really I'm really pleased that I did this. Um, it's you know got me back in touch with some cracking films. It's been a really enjoyable little project within the podcast. Um, just before uh, the end of the year, I will be uh, slinging up all the little segments I've done on these films as a bonus episode. So we'll have some more content for you, uh, you know, around Christmas, New Year time, so you can listen to a special year of the Car carpenter episode that's got all of the John Carpenter stuff in it. And one of my news resolutions for next uh, next year is going to be to do something similar, a little kind of you know twelve film or twelve month project of films. Um, so that's that's year of the carpenter. That's our roundup. Uh, next next month, or in fact next year, we'll have some new 
New Year's resolutions for you, and hopefully it'll help us give a, an interesting take on our film watching uh, for you, the audience, to enjoy. Anything else you wanted to add on that, mate? We can declare the round uh, finished. No, I think that that's it. Um, I do find... I just want to say, I do find it weird that um, Escape from New York isn't higher up on the Year of the Carpenter. This is the thing I was, you know, stuck in the rules of like how it's uh, it's um, rated on IMDb, and it's like it's sixth, sixth best, and um, it's interesting. Some people have been a little bit kind of taken aback, I think, by its very nihilistic tone, because a lot of John Carpenter films are kind of more upbeat than that, and yeah. uh, it's a really dystopian film. It's really quite bleak, and Kurt Russell's character is essentially saying, "Fuck it, the world doesn't deserve to be saved," and I don't think everybody gets on with that but I mean I think it's brilliant I was quite when I started doing the list I went really sixth is that all but yeah that's where it ended up hmm it's mad that that's finished yeah I don't suppose you thought you'd actually ever get to the end of it oh uh, well you know it was yeah it was just it's, it was an enjoyable way to kind of look at films it's almost like you set yourself a little challenge um, but yeah I, I enjoyed it and it's um, yeah I have to see what I do uh, next month um, next year sorry that uh, that matches up to it Okay, so that's our roundup. Thank you very much. We'll uh, we'll move on to the next part of the podcast now. Now for the classics and recommended feature, where we try and watch something from our backlog of great films instead of the endless movie repeats rotating on TV. Our watch list includes films one or both of us hasn't seen before and recommendations from you, the audience. Committing to do so for this feature has helped break the mental block around some of those films and mean we got to see and share our thoughts on a wide range of films from Paul Thomas Anderson's oddball romantic comedy Punch Drunk Love to French classic Antou Chablis. We have a growing list of other films to do for this feature as we keep adding films we haven't seen yet and from the steady stream of audience recommendations. The list is so long, in fact, that it's getting a bit arduous to read all the films out at the start of this segment every month. What we've decided to do instead is to create a watch list on Letterboxd. You can go to letterboxd.com slash double reel and click watch list for all the films in our list and you can make recommendations there or in all the other usual places on our socials if there's a recommended film you'd like us to add to the list. This month we're tackling an all-time great film from the classic era of film noir, one of the most famous adaptations of Raymond Chandler's Philip Marlowe books uh, and something of a classic of uh, star power in the 1940s. The classics and recommended feature for episode 20 is the 1946 version of The Big Sleep. So, James, we're going right back into 1940s black and white, you know, sort of film noir territory here. Is this a film you'd seen before? No, I hadn't. I hadn't seen much of Humphrey Bogart, to be honest. I've only ever seen Casablanca, and even then I'd only kind of seen it in bits and parts and not properly paid yeah. full attention to it. But no, I gave, gave this a watch, and... It, it was okay. Like, I understand why it was popular at the time, but watching it now, I just, I, yeah, wasn't for me, but it was, it's, I can see why it's a classic. You know, it's, um, yeah, I mean, it's a very interesting. So I think it's back in the time when, um, these stories were kind of new to Hollywood. Like, this kind of, you weren't getting many films in 1946 that were about private detectives talking about gambling debts and stuff like that. So it was kind of like a, a nuanced, kind of plotline but no I thought it was it was good it wasn't offensive it wasn't harmful I didn't hate it it just it wasn't fully my thing yeah I know what you mean there's there's a few different barriers for someone especially someone your age going back to a film like this from the 1940s now you know, one of them like you say is the fact that you know that might have been new then but it's not new now like you know film noir private detective 
stories became so popular that they were they were a cliche that people were making jokes about before I was even born, let alone James. So this is this was made fifty years before you were born, and a lot of these <laughs> things have become cliches now. Um, not only that, you know, black and white with you know the censorship that was on films back then, it does kind of you know the style and the the degree to which they can kind of show what they're trying to show on the film. It is it, there is a kind of barrier. It doesn't it doesn't come naturally, I think, to watch it. I mean, I'm trying to imagine the equivalent for me would be watching a film from the 20s, which would be a silent movie. And apart from maybe Metropolis from that era, a lot of silent movies I, I don't, you know, I find, you know, not so easy to watch because it is different. The acting is different. You know, the, the, the gestures, the performances, the way people hold a gun is really different. And, and the other thing is, is that, you know, people have moved on, you know, the, the film noir genre since then into films that, you know, fit in the modern era, like Chinatown, LA Confidential and stuff like that which are a lot more kind of full-on in the detail they can show and the lack of censorship. And in The Big Sleep, it's trying to talk about the fact that this has got gambling debts, this woman's like on drugs and has been caught up with, um, you know, pornographers, which is illegal and could ruin her reputation at the time. And um, they they had to kind of really gently hint at what was going on because the censor just wouldn't pass it. And there's a scene in the film where, you know, because I've read the books, I'm a big fan of Raymond Chandler, um, there's a scene in the book where the, the, the younger sister, the one who's kind of in all the trouble, um, uh, in, it turns up at Philip Marlowe's apartment in his bed, naked, and wants to seduce him. And when he throws her out, she gets really nasty about it and swears at him and all of this stuff. And in the film, she's fully clothed, sitting on his sofa, and it doesn't have the same effect. You know, it's not the same, you know, it, it, it's not as much of a kind of challenge for Philip Marlowe to say, get out of my flat, do you know what I mean? Because um, she's just sitting there in a cocktail dress, you know, um, and you know she's, you know, it's much less kind of vicious uh, on on screen just because it had to be. So, um, ironically, they did make a remake of this in the seventies, but they got it all horribly wrong. Um, you know, I just think that they do belong to a certain era. Um, I mean, on the whole, it's still got a lot of good, lot of good things to it. It's not my favourite Philip Marlowe film from the era. There's a film called Farewell, My Lovely, with Dick Powell, which I think is more in keeping. <laughs> I, I mean, I love Bogart, but I think he was he was more of a Sam Spade type character, which he played in Maltese Falcon, than he was a Raymond Chandler, Philip Marlowe character. Philip Marlowe's meant to be a bit more downtrodden, and I, he, he doesn't quite convey that, even though he's very good and he's very charismatic. The other thing about the film is that it's got um, him and Lauren Bacall in it, and the the book has got a very kind of, you know, feisty, you know, wisecracking, you know, brilliant romantic and hot relationship between these two characters in it. But this became about Bogart and Bacall because they'd done a couple of films together already that had been absolutely, you know, mind you know, taken America by storm. They were hot, as hot for each other in real life as they appeared to be on screen. They were America's hottest couple, and I think they they recut the film so there would be as much as possible of Bogart and Bacall. Ugh, that's a bit. Ugh. And it's you know it means that the film could have. There's a few ways the film. It was a big hit and it's very popular and it's very highly regarded. And Howard Hawks is a terrific filmmaker. He turned his hand to a bunch of things. He's a very versatile filmmaker, so he wasn't just a noir specialist. Um, but it was a bit... It, it it became a star vehicle, and it's very enjoyable for that. But I think, having read the books, it's like, I enjoyed the film, it's good, but it's not the best version of Big Sleep they could have made, if you see what I mean. But, you know, brilliantly done, really atmospheric for the time, very stylish. Um, but, yeah, like you say, I think for... For me, I, I can just about go back to like 40s and 50s film noir, partly because I'm a fan of it. Um, but I think for you, there is a long distance and a big barrier between you and films of this era, I would think. 
Yeah, I think the problem is that kind of detective films like that I've seen are totally bonk or not even films like True Detective is the first kind of detective yeah thing that I think of and you know that's got a much bigger budget and you know in my opinion you know better actors just because I really like Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson so when you show someone from my era say say you to go back and show someone Batman from 19 what was the first Batman 1966. 1966, then show it compared to The Dark Knight Rises. It's that kind of thing, like, yeah. the frame of reference is totally different. And, and I'll tell you what, they could actually do some Raymond Chandler stuff in the style of True Detective and in the style of these kind of dark crime series, and I think it would, it would go very well. I mean, they did yeah. actually try and do a Philip, a Philip Marlowe um, TV series back in the day, and it was very good, but it's from the 80s when they didn't, you know, TV shows weren't... Know, like your HBO, Netflix, and, 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 and you know dark dramas that you have now. So while it was very good, it was still very like very classic, you know, TV style rather than the kind of very deep dark stuff you get nowadays. Um, one funny story about Philip Marlowe that I'm, I'm going to have to put down for posterity on the podcast because it's been a family story for years and years. Um, I'm a fan of Philip Marlowe. I got that from my dad. He got that from his mum. Uh, my gran. Um, so this, uh, you know, it's the sort of thing that we would all kind of watch and enjoy together. And uh, there's been different versions of of, of Philip Marlowe, Robert Mitchum played him, uh, Dick Powell, Henry Bogart, a couple other people. And when they did the TV series, my dad and I agreed that Powers Booth, the guy who played um, Philip Marlowe in the series, is the best one. He's really good. So I remember excitedly showing the TV show to my gran, who'd been a you know a fan of the, the books as well and seen some of the other films, to see what she thought of it. And she watched the first 20 minutes of an episode with me, and there was like a pause for an ad break. And I said, so, Gran, what do you think of it? What do you think of, think of him as Philip Marlowe? She just looked at the screen for a second and said, his hat's too small for his head. And then turned it off and watched the rest of it. <laughs> and oh, that's, dear. that's the sort of family story about when, 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 it, when you've got a particular kind of you know, relative in your family who is very kind of set in their ways and very strong in their opinions, and will not be moved. That was the perfect um, description of her. Um, so you just have to say, his hat's too small for his head, and your granddad just falls about laughing. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it's it's a classic film. Noir. I mean, I really enjoyed it. I mean, Bogart and Bacall are great together, but it does... I mean, we've got, you know, Son of Stan is a friend of the pod. She's, she, uh, she listens in. She will probably be throwing things at her, her iPod right now um, because we're not... Uh, well, she's 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 a bit retro, so maybe she still still listens to it on an iPod. Um, that she loves these old older films, and I I like them. They're not quite for you, but I mean, I think it's good to watch an old classic now and again. There's a lot of style, there's a lot of craftsmanship goes into those films. Um, certainly think our listeners, you know, get get yourself into some film noir. Try Farewell, My Lovely, um, uh, by uh, by Dick Powell. Um, but definitely watch this, especially if you like a bit of classic old Hollywood and Bogart and Bacall. And now for the Hidden Gem feature about a film that is not as well known or as appreciated as it deserves to be. We aim to bring an overlooked and underrated film to your attention and say why this deserves to have more critical and commercial success than it got and why you should watch it or reevaluate it. This month we're discussing a film by the director who brought us the 80s classic Gremlins, whose attempt at a film of the darker flip side to Toy Story didn't quite hit the same heights. The Hidden Gem for episode 20 is Small Soldiers. So, 
See, my recollection of this film, mate, was that when you were little, um, we had this on video in the house and watched it quite a lot. And I enjoyed it. I thought it was a really good film. It had a little bit more darkness and kind of twisted humour in it than you normally get in a kid's film. And I seem to remember you liking it, but I'm, I'm wondering if that's, you know, looking back, whether you did enjoy it as much as I thought you did. I enjoyed it because it was um, it was toys, like, like fighting big people. Yeah. Like, I was two when this came out, so I think I must have watched it when I was about yeah, was, four. Yeah, it was on video afterwards, yeah. And I probably, all of the humour in it probably went over my head, so getting to re-watch it again was a lot of fun because it was, you know, I was actually getting the jokes now. Yeah. Um, the kind of twisted side to all, which was, it was like, an, it's like when you watch Toy Story when you're a kid, you're just enjoying it because it's the toys, and then you watch it again, and then you watch Toy Story 3, and the Mr. Potato Head has to use a cucumber as his body, and it looks like a penis when he comes yeah. through. Like, that kind of humour yeah, yeah. comes through when you're older. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was, no, it was a good watch. It's a stupid film. It's very silly. Um, yeah, it's 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 interesting. It's um, It did okay at the box office, but it did about it did about a third as well as the Pixar films of the day were doing. And it had DreamWorks and stuff like that behind it. And it didn't quite, you know, it, you know, I think they were hoping for it to be bigger than it was. It got mixed reviews from the critics. It's got 6.2 out of 10 on IMDb, which means it's rated lower than Star Wars The Phantom Menace. Um, and I, I think it deserves uh, to be, you know, sort of better remembered than it is. Um, funnily enough, we got a lot of messages on the social saying, you know, this film's got the love it deserves. We all love it. So it does have like a loyal following out there. Um it's directed by a guy called Joe Dante, and as well as doing Gremlins, he actually started out doing kind of horror films. He did the first film of Piranha, which was like an obvious ripoff of Jaws, where, you know, uh, piranhas are, are killing everybody. And they did remakes, reboots of those, which were quite rubbish, but they sort of retained that slightly spoofy tone that the original had. And he also did a werewolf film called The Howling, which also combined horror and kind of humor and, you know, a satirical touch to it. So he's very good at a slightly twisted and slightly sort of, you know, humorous kind of treatment of these stories, which which was perfected in Gremlins, because Gremlins was a massive hit back in the day. Um, you know, it's it was seen as a big Christmas film, and it was kind of right on the edge of what you could let a kid see in terms of, like, violence and scary stuff. And um, as a protege of Spielberg, I think he represents that slightly more dark and anarchic stuff that Spielberg, I think Spielberg likes that type of film but it doesn't kind of come out very well when he tries to do it because he's a bit too wholesome. But he liked the way that Joe Dante did that kind of sick stuff. So he, you know, that's why he got Joe Dante to make this film. And it, was, um, it wasn't going to be a kid's film. It was going to be aimed as a teen film. And, I'll, you know, and, and sort of focus on the, you know, the teen characters played by Kirsten Dunst and the other, the other kid who I've only ever seen in this. Um, I don't know how well that would have worked, but toning it down for a kid's film was, you know, I think, I think it was very interesting. Because within there, there's all sorts of comment on, you know, consumerism, global corporations, suburban life, you know, militarism, which, yeah, like you say, James, you, you wouldn't have meant anything to you back then, but you're picking it all up now. How did that, you know, that's all, it's all 20 odd years out of date in terms of a lot of the references, but how did that play for you now? Yeah, it was just daft. I just enjoyed it. It was, the, I just, it was just, it was like, it was telling, it was trying to make kind of points about like you say, militarism and things like that, but it was telling it with, like, toys, which you didn't really, you, you never really got with Toy Story in that kind of way. Like, Toy Story always is always, like, trying to get kids to be better people mm-hmm. by saying, oh, look how caring this kid is of his toys, and you look how important it is to never lose that kind of child inside yeah. you. Whereas Small Soldiers was just trying to kind of make points. Um, yeah, and this this film was a lot more for, like, the, you know, Andy's, like, twisted next-door neighbour, uh, isn't it? 
Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's it was interesting that when you when you're watching the film that in fact um, the, the the American military are, are the bad guys. Yeah, because that's never happened. Yeah, but it's you know it's never you know it's it's not often you know told that way in American films. You know, so there's just a bit of subversion in there, which is very interesting. A couple of a couple of fun facts. Um, originally, they wanted Arnie in the cast of Predator to play the talking soldier toys. Amazing. Uh, and instead, they got Tommy Lee Jones as as the main one, Chip Hazard, and the rest of the um, or most of the rest of the of the soldiers were played by surviving cast members of the Dirty Dozen, like cool. like Jim Brown and and uh, Ernest Borgnine. Jim Brown, of course, being the you know real life um, football star, black football star turned um, uh, movie star who featured in One Night in Miami, which we talked about on this podcast. Um, I just thought it was quite. Um, I thought it was quite fun because it's much darker and more violent than your average kids' film. It's got some great touches, like the bit where they're being they're under siege from the um, from the soldiers, and they've like you know managed to um, get hold of some weapons that can do some real damage or improvise stuff. And suddenly they start playing the Spice Girls at full volume, and one of the adults goes, "What's this?" And the other one goes, "Psychological warfare." And it's just there's so many like lovely moments in it, you know. Yeah, no, it was it was it was just a kind of nostalgic thing to go back and watch. I hadn't seen this film in about twenty years. It was great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's. I think this is definitely worth a watch. I think it's your kids will, you know. It's funny enough. I mean, you were watching stuff like The Simpsons and other things when you were really little, so you were getting a, a like a diet. There was a bit more darkness in your film diet than probably were, you know most people would intend for it for a child as young as you were at the time. I'd probably say that slightly older kids would enjoy it more. You know, you know, you know, seven, eight years old and up. But I think I think anyone could enjoy it. It's got a lot of fun stuff in it. It's got. You know, it's, it's got quite a lot of those. Oh, oh, look! It's them actors that you recognise in the film that you've seen in a few other things. Um, uh, the the cast of Spinal Tap play the the, the Gorgons, or whatever they call the Gorgonites. Um, <laughs> so there's lots of little kind of Easter eggs for film geeks like us. Um, and like you, James, I did enjoy watching an old movie that we'd enjoyed together, you know, before, but enjoying it in a slightly different context now, right? Yeah, no, it was good. It was good. It was thoroughly enjoyed it. Stupid film, but I love it. Yeah. So I think in summary, I think we're probably I'm probably going to try and you know make a couple couple more suggestions for like hidden gems that have like for a family audience or, or aimed at kids because there's a few things out there that don't get the love they deserve. As good as Pixar is, there are other other ways to tell stories for kids out there. Sometimes a little sort of bit more, um, you know, uh, you know, a bit saltier, a bit bit darker. Worth uh, worth um, worth you know investing in a bit of variety in your kids' films and. Uh, yeah, we're championing it because it doesn't get mentioned that much these days. But I think it's it's a cracking film that deserves deserves a watch. It deserves to be remembered as a as a as a a, a decent film from its era. So we present for you this hidden gem. Now for the one that got away, where we dig deeper into cinematic history for stories of potentially great films that top directors tried and failed to bring to the screen. We look at what happened, why it didn't work out, and what it might have been like if they'd been able to realise their vision. This month we look at one of the most talented but also controversial filmmakers of the last 50 years, and his attempt to make a film about one of the most beloved figures in American history. The one that got away for episode 20 is Oliver Stone's Martin Luther King. So, what did you know about this film, like before you know we set it up for this this episode and then what did you find out when you started looking into it uh fuck all before and then a lot after um 
Yeah, it was... See, when you sing Oliver Stone and Martin Luther King, I think, oh, fuck. I think, oh, no. It's not, it doesn't strike me as, like, an obvious pairing, does it? No, it didn't. It, no. Oliver Stone doesn't strike me as a director who would do a film about... Like, a, you know what I mean? He wouldn't do a sensitive film, because no. Martin Luther King is a very sensitive topic. I don't think the word sensitive has ever been used as an adjective in the context of an Oliver Stone film. Ever. Yeah. So, you know, when I think of Oliver Stone, I think of Platoon, and I think of that god-awful Alexander film, which was very insensitive to my eyeballs. Yeah. Um, so, it just it made me think, um, what? And I'm kind of glad he didn't get to make it. Because yeah, it's, it's it's an interesting one. It's one where, I mean, see, I grew up with Oliver Stone films, and I think he's a, he's a, a brilliant film director. He's one of the best screenwriters ever. Um, you know, just just watching Platoon again, you just get an incredible feel for the quality of the, uh, you know, the, the dialogue, the, the you know, the just the the brilliance of which that film is made. And the reason he wanted to make a Martin Luther King film is he made a number of films about kind of you know, in sort of political events that meant a lot to him about the Vietnam War, about the 60s and the 70s, and uh, these characters that shook the world at the time. They were to one extent or another countercultural cultural figures or that, that shook up the establishment or were, you know, very heavily influenced in some way, for good or bad. So he did a film about Jim Morrison and the Doors. He did a film about Richard Nixon. Um, he did a film about the Kennedy assassination. And, you know, he did... A, a couple of well, two or three Vietnam films. So this would, in Oliver Stone's mind, I think this would fill a, a, a sort of part of his kind of sort of ongoing thesis about American history, the things he's got to say. Like you, though, I I think his his way of telling stories, his tendency to kind of pile in with his size tens, you know, you know, over the top of the ball a little bit, would. I'm not surprised that the that the, uh, the the King family went. Oh, I'm I'm not having this because I think it I think it needed someone more diplomatic. Um, not to say we shouldn't tell the, the warts and all story of, of of human beings who happen to be you know incredible historical figures, but I think I just don't think Oliver Stone was ever going to convince the um uh the, the the King family that he was going to do this. So you know, for a while it was going to happen. Uh, it, this was another one. This was Spielberg, I think, and DreamWorks were, were going to be the, the people behind this. And they initially had the agreement of the King family to make this film to the extent that the um, the speeches, the, the big speeches, I Have a Dream and, and, and all the other kind of famous ones that, that Martin Luther King did on in his civil rights campaign were licensed exclusively to this film, um, which is why Selma, when it came out, has no um, Martin Luther King actual speeches in it. What? No, um, the the makers of that film had to write new speeches that would be in keeping with with Martin Luther King and try and reproduce the kind of way that he said it. But they didn't oh. have they didn't have copyright to do, you know, I, I you know I have a dream or you know or any of the things he said on the steps of you know you know courthouse uh, in in real life. Um, so for a while, this was that this film was in the lead. This was going to be the Martin Luther King film more so than Selma, um, because it had Spielberg behind it, it had DreamWorks Studio behind it. Um, and Jamie Foxx was lined up to play Martin Luther King. So we're talking about like the mid to late 2000s where this would have happened. So, you know, this could have been another kind of big, you know, awards laden performance for Jamie Foxx. Um, I'm sure he would have been very motivated to bring, uh, uh, 
Martin Luther King to life, the way he brought, you know, especially Jamie Foxx, uh, sorry, especially Ray Charles uh, to life, but also, you know, Bandini that he played in, in our in our league. So he definitely, you know, it had things going for it. And, and where it came down to was um, Oliver Stone was going to, he was going to tell some of the more human side of Martin Luther King. He's alleged to maybe had some affairs. He's alleged to have fallen out with some of the other members of the civil rights movement about, you know, ways to, you know, conduct the campaign. So it wasn't all kind of um, hearts and flowers between everybody in the civil rights campaign. But that, I, I imagine that makes for a better story, though, right? You know, it's not, um, it would be pretty dull if it was just like, a you know, everyone kind of, you know, the official version where everyone kind of gets on and, and only tells the good side of everybody. But I, I just don't think Oliver Stone was trusted to get on the right side of that, to just get that balance. Yeah, like his reputation kind of preceded him. Yeah, exactly. Quickly. I think he, he wouldn't even have got the chance, I think, to present a script and he talked to the King family and say, look, hear me out, right? I think people are ready to to see this side of, of, of Martin Luther King. He was a human being after all. Um, I, think the, the, I think the big shame, the big thing that we're missing from this was that towards the end of his life, Martin Luther King, and you know what, not even towards the end of his life, quite throughout his, his most prominent campaigning in the 60s, Martin Luther King was a lot more politically radical than anyone gives him credit for, because it's a lot more easy to just portray him as a you know, nothing more than a saint in the mould of kind of Mahatma Gandhi, when he was a lot more politically radical than that. Non-violent, but he was he was a socialist in in the sense we would understand it over here in the, in the UK. He made speeches about it's not just about removing kind of discrimination against black people. We've got to stop discrimination against the poor. We've got to stop the, you know, horrible inequality in the American system. We can't let unfettered, uh, you know, unfettered capitalism, you know, chew up and spit out millions of ordinary people. That's black, white, anyone you care to name. Um, while, you know, the, the whole system is geared to kind of preserving the wealth of people. You know, it's, it's actually socialism for the rich and the, the most evil kind of capitalism for the poor. And all of this stuff, you don't hear a lot from Martin Luther King that he said all that stuff, but he did, and he scared the American establishment. You know, even, you know, he, he won these great victories in, in the early part of the civil rights movement, and everyone was on his side, and he he was a very, very powerful man, quite rightly so, because he was changing America for the better. And he was going to start campaigning quite hard, right? And not in terms of tactics, not in terms of the approach, but he was ideologically not that far from what the Black Panthers were saying. To say, you know what, we need some, we need uh, we need a bit of socialism in all this. We need to actually get you know all of the poor people together and change the way the system works. Because while people are in grinding poverty, it doesn't matter that we kind of on paper eliminated racism and all of that stuff. I think would have been very interesting to explore, and Oliver Stone wanted to. And I think that's the biggest shame that that didn't come out. Because I would like to see someone tell that side of Martin Luther King. Because I think it's as important as his you know you know sort of civil rights campaigning that he's, that he's more well known for. Yeah, no, it's weird. I, feel, I do feel bad that he didn't get the chance to, but also wouldn't have trusted him to do it. No, and this is this is the other thing. If you look at some of the other films that he's made, he um he can resort to very crude you know, imagery, violence, taking the piss in terms of the facts. I, th- I think I think he's got a bloody nerve in some of the statements that he made when this film fell apart. Um, just to complete the story for for the listeners at home. The, the the King family objected and said, we will not support this. We will withdraw, you know, the, the copyright or the licensing to the speeches. We will not cooperate with this film. And they could have gone ahead and made the film anyway and kind of done something around that. But I think Spielberg and DreamWorks went, I'm not sure. This isn't for us. If we haven't got the support of the King family, we don't want to be in a fight with, you know, with the loved ones of 
of, of, of the great doctor himself, you know. It's unnecessarily bad press, isn't it? Yeah. And, and the thing was, you know, Oliver Stone has this tendency, he did it on JFK, he did it on Nixon, he's done it on a lot of films where he will, you know, he's got no filter, he doesn't seem to understand when he's like going to really piss people off, and I think he plays fast and loose with the facts in a way that you just think, is he can needlessly offend people when, I think, uh, it, 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 I think it takes a better touch, I think it takes someone who people would more immediately, you know, warm to. I don't. I don't think it's. I don't think it's out of order to say that you're more likely to get, you know, acceptance if a a filmmaker with Oliver Stone's skill, yeah, but maybe he's African American and kind of show that he's, you know, not exploiting this for his own own ends. Um, yeah. So if you were going to get a Martin Luther King film that would be anything like, you know, as technically brilliant as Mar- as Oliver Stone would have made it, with perhaps more truth and sort of solidity to it, it. You're talking about Steve McQueen, aren't you? You're talking about Steve McQueen having a go at this at this story um, because his his credentials are impeccable and he's as talented a filmmaker as Oliver Stone, maybe even more so. Chris, I don't think we should just give it to the director because of the skin colour, but I do think this is Martin Luther King is such an important person to African-American people that to get the story told right, you don't want to be giving it to Oliver fucking Stone. Mm-hmm. I do think Steven Spielberg would have done a Good job of making a kind of sensitive story about it, and not like been an arsehole and things like that. But you don't want to, you don't want to give it to Michael Bay, you know, for example. <laughs> yeah, but like, Spielberg would have been perhaps too far in the other direction. He would have, I think, he would have been a bit too shy of any of the controversial aspects of uh, of Martin Luther King. You know, yeah, this is true. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I'm with you, mate. It's again, I speak as someone who's a big fan of Oliver Stone in, in terms of his talent as a filmmaker. I do think this is an area where he would have. I think he would have trampled on the flower beds a little bit when he made this, and I don't think it's necessary. I think someone with a with a bit more of a surer touch of the um on the facts and the ability to be more diplomatic with the family would be required to tell this more nuanced story of Martin Luther King. See, because it wouldn't undermine him. I think it would. I think it would strengthen people's understanding of him that he was a human being and he was a real guy. And I tell you what, he was going to make some real changes to America. You know. He was he was about he was starting to say things that were really frightening um, uh, America and all the people who frightened America this much back then ended up dead, you know. So not to be too much of a conspiracy theorist about it, this the FBI were killing people like Fred Hampton, like other people who were who were you know threatening the the white status quo back then, and Martin Luther King would have changed that and he would have changed it in a sustainable way because he had the support of millions and millions. He was. He was he was the person who could have tipped things, tipped the scales, and I think we'd see a very different America today as a result. I think you look at some of the shit that's going on in the streets in America, and it's because someone like Martin Luther King was cut short before he could, you know, because he could have marched on Washington again, and it wouldn't have been riots. It would have been him standing outside, you know, the you know the Congress building, making you know unassailable points about what's wrong with America. He might have been the one to make the difference, and I think you've got to ask the question, you know. It, it's no surprise he ended up dead, and I think it would be. It, it's important, I think, for that story to be told. Um, like you, I don't think Oliver Stone would have been the one to tell it. I think that all, all the story, the story would have been all about the controversy. It would have all been about the liberties he took, the way in which he offended the family, and it, the, the the message that he was trying to tell would have got lost. I think. Yeah. For all I think, Oliver Stone's a very talented guy.
We closed the first reel of the episode with the remake Hate Watch. This is where we relax our usual calm and balanced approach to our film discussions and rant at the lack of originality in the Hollywood boardroom. Whether they call it a remake, a reboot, a reimagining, we don't like it and we want it to stop. There are, of course, examples of good remakes when they are justified and well done. This feature does not discuss those films. What we look at here are remakes that disrespected the memory of a film that they should have left well alone. This month we're looking at a true giant in the field of terrible remakes, in which Sylvester Stallone decided he was up to the job of recreating a character made famous by Michael Caine. The remake Hate Watch for episode 20 is Get Carter. So, James, what's your relationship to uh, to these two films, sort of the first one and the, and the remake? Um, nothing really. Um, I've never I've never seen the original. Um, I watched some of that to kind of get an idea of what it was about, and then put this on because, like I said, time has been quite tight. Yeah. So I watched a bit of that, got the kind of feel of that, and oh, it wasn't too bad. A bit dated, but um, it was it was an enjoyable watch. I thought, right, I kind of have an idea of what what I'm in, I'm in for. So I put the the remake one on, and it it was shit. Um, yeah, no surprises this time. So. So, for the, the benefit of, uh, of of anyone coming completely fresh to this, uh, the original Get Carter came in 1971. It's like a one of the all time classic British crime films. It's one of it's one of the three or four films you would talk about as the best ever British gangster film. Now, I mean that's not up there with the best American gangster films. Uh, perhaps it's not a very crowded field, but along with something like say the the Long Good Friday, Mona Lisa, and Layer Cake, Get Carter is right up there. You might add Eastern Promises to that, if you don't mind the fact it's by like a Canadian director and about the Russian mob in London, so it's not completely British. And there's also more pastiche-type films like Snatch, Lockstock, and Sexy Beast. But Get Carter is really kind of solid. It's quite serious. It's got an amazing score, and it's one of Michael Caine's signature performances is this really chilling central character. And if you've never seen it, um, and you all you know of London-based crime films is cheapo cockney dog shit starring Danny Dyer and former cast members of London's Burning, you'll probably be pleasantly surprised to find that it is possible to do a good film about British gangsters. The plot's fairly simple. Michael Caine's Jack Carter is a London gangster who was born in the northeast of England, but moved away and rose through the criminal ranks to be the second in command to a major crime boss in London. His brother, who's still up north, is murdered, and Carter goes up to Newcastle to find and take revenge on those responsible. You get a bit of a culture clash between Michael Caine's Cockney ways and the impoverished northeast of the time. You get an examination of the, you know, seedy criminal underworld of the region. Uh, there's also a subplot in which Michael Caine's character is having an affair with his, you know, crime boss's girlfriend and planning to leave the country with her after all this is done. So you've got an element of jeopardy and double cross behind it all. The remake came out almost 30 years later in 2000 with Sylvester Stallone in the lead role uh, and uh, relocates the story entirely. Carter is now a gangland enforcer and debt collector in Las Vegas, and his murdered brother and the family roots he returns to were in Seattle in the rainy northwest. Uh, fun fact, uh, there is another version of this film which came out around the same time, basically a, a competing adaptation of the source novel. Uh, they did that as a black exploitation film set in California starring Pam Greer and Bernie Casey. So by the time Stallone has come to make this, it's all the more redundant because there's already been two versions of this story, not one. Um, but I mean... Uh, in terms of the style and atmosphere, I mean, there is meant there is meant to be a distinct style and atmosphere to the first film because you've got London, you know, in, in 1970, uh, and then you've got the northeast of England, which might be 30 years behind it in, in some ways, you know, in, in terms of the way in which the regions outside London kind of were left behind. 
I mean, did you get anything like that in this film, James, in terms of like Vegas, Seattle, the way he goes back home? I mean, did, did you feel like there was any kind of distinct style at play in this film? Um, I think they just went, well, Newcastle's a part, kind of part of the country that's very rainy and Seattle's very rainy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just kind of thought, well, why don't we just pick two big cities? But if you were actually to compare London and Newcastle, you know, London's absolutely massive, and Newcastle is just a—it's quite a small city, if you know what I mean. Like when yeah. you actually, when you're actually in the city centre, so it, that that didn't work. Um, it, it didn't, in terms of direct yeah. comparison, yeah, but, it, it didn't have any of like the class divide and social divide that you would have between um, London and Newcastle, and and that's the thing is that most people, you know, some people watch gangster films just to watch a story of gangsters, but often the better films. It, it it puts it in a, in a wider context. You know, you can you can be watching a film about you know Michael Caine and you know his gangland enemies, but you're also watching a film about the differences between London and the North, especially at that time. And and that um, and that that context gives you something. For, you know, it's the, the the something to do with the wider society that the audiences can relate to. But here, yeah, we know Vegas is bigger than Seattle. I mean, I know that Seattle's going to be quite small time by comparison, but I don't think. Um, in America, the social and sort of divide is more like between like the coastal cities and the, and the heartland, and you don't you don't get anything. You don't get the equivalent kind of "you're not one of us anymore" kind of um, kind of vibe here, do you? No, not at all. It was just and, and yeah, and and the thing is, I think I think there's an underlying problem here is that Michael Caine and Stallone. I mean, I like both of them. I probably prefer Michael Caine, but they're both good at different things. You know. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't think Michael Caine would, would, would get away with uh, starring in a remake of Rambo. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And and while while I can believe, you know, Stallone as, as a you know as, as a gangster or as a mobster, he, when, when the original part is played by Michael Caine, I think you're going to struggle because there is a very important lesson here. You know, just because Michael Caine makes it look easy doesn't mean it is. And uh, <laughs> Jude Law found that out to his cost when he remade Alfie. And uh, Mark Wahlberg found that out to his cost when he when he remade the Italian Job, and you know it's not easy to do what Michael Caine does. You're better off doing your own thing. I mean, what did you think of Stallone as this character? I mean, he he wasn't really trying to be Michael Caine's character, but what do you think of the character he did portray? See, the problem I have with Sylvester Stallone is that he's one of my favourite actors, but when he's in the right role, and I. While I think I agree with you, that you could play a gangster. I felt like this wasn't the right role. Because this isn't just a gangster. It's about a gangster who's now an outsider. You know, he's not. He's not back. He's not. He's not welcome back to his community. You know, you're not one of us because the film didn't really do much in that compared to the um, the original one. So I just, to be honest, I think Sylvester Stallone could have done a better performance if it wasn't you know directed by Stephen King, written by who's the other one, David McKenna. Yeah, they sound like journeymen, don't they? Yeah. So I think it. Do you know what the biggest letdown for me was? I mean, I agree with you. I think because of the writing. And because of the fact this is this is one of those classic traps that remakes fall into is that they're trying to do something new a little bit, aren't they? But they're trapped in kind of the the straitjacket of the original plot. So it kind of it, it, what, what what you get you get two things in a film like that you get a, you get an inferior version of the um, of the original film and you get a few attempts to do something different that aren't properly developed and you kind of go oh well, okay well fair enough. And it, it all becomes a bit humdrum. But um, apart from that, I thought the biggest disappointment was I didn't think Sylvester Stallone came across as all that scary or violent. 
uh, hmm. as this character. And I know he can, right? Do you know what I mean? I mean, in, in something like, you know, I know Rambo's not a mob film, but every fucking Rambo film, right, he gets to a point where Rambo's had enough and he starts really fucking people up, right? So we know he can do it. But in this, I never really got the, 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 the impression that he was particularly intimidating or particularly kind of... Uh, you know, he didn't sort of like lay waste to everybody like like in a John Wick film. Do you know what I mean? And I felt like he was a bit, a bit, um, a bit underpowered, which I, I think comes down to the direction because Stallone can do that. But it just felt like, yeah, he's hitting a guy. Yeah, he's kind of, you know, he's, he's grabbing uh, Alan Cumming by the scruff of the neck, and Alan Cumming's scared of him. But do you know what I mean? I, I didn't. I never, I never got that kind of slight chill that says, "Oh, he's going to really fuck people up now." Yeah, um, and that is obviously, like you say, down to direction because Sylvester Stallone has played some bad men in yeah. Um, yeah. in his acting career. You know, he's played some. You know, he's played Rambo, who's probably one of the scariest characters. Not in terms of like that isn't a supervillain, you know, with like the mm-hmm. the brutal, like the brutal violent act we've seen him on doing screen, and you yeah. know, Rocky's a fucking badass as well. So you know that Sylvester Stallone's got that in his in his locker and in his repertoire so it's obviously just down to poor direction um, yeah. why they threw 63 million at it as well yeah I, I can't see that money on the screen anywhere um, yeah. the other the other thing I think that it's a, a, a challenge here and this is again because it's 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 trapped in the in the, the reality of the film that's remaking in 1971 there'd never really been a particularly serious British gangster film and, and actually, if you look at the history of American gangster films, The Godfather came as a bit of a shock because mafiosos prior to that had always been portrayed as kind of like comedy caricatures. And when you right. suddenly see these gangster films where organized crime is organized and it's serious and you wouldn't want to mess with these people, the early 70s was the first time that anyone really properly did that. And also with the lack of censorship after things like the whole Hayes Code and everything broke down in the, in the 60s, you could show a degree of kind of violence and amorality that you know effectively been banned before. So when they did get Carter, they said, "You know what? This guy is is a bastard. I mean, he might be upset about the death of his brother. He might take revenge on some of the other things that have happened in the film to to members of his family or people that he knows. Um, and he has some sort of code. But he's basically a really fucking. He's, he's quite evil, and he doesn't have any conscience. And he, he will kill someone, and he'll kill them quite brutally, and he'll show no mercy." And there's not really many moments of kind of lightness because what they were doing at the time was saying, this is some serious shit and this is happening in your streets. Now, in the early 70s, that's fresh, right? But that's been done, right? The Godfather's been done. Uh, Scarface has been done. You know, an audience coming to a gangster film in the year 2000 does not need to be reminded that organized crime and mobsters are really serious people. Do you know what I mean? So I think that it's kind of... The whole reason for making the original film again is sort of redundant. I think what they could have done, what they could have done to make it work, is the actual plot line, the central plot line that um, Carter. I don't want to, you know, don't want to spoil the plot too much. Not for the remake so much, but for the you know the original film, in case people haven't seen that and want to go to it. But the main plot line re- revolves around the organised crime gang that um, Carter encounters in Newcastle. One of the main things they're doing is pornography, and they are. They're essentially forcing women into pornography and, and exploiting them. Uh, and that's really harmful. And those women feel, you know, as well as feeling like traumatized by what's happened to them, they feel ashamed. And we all get that. And that's one thing that was as relevant in the year 2000 as it was in 1971 and maybe in slightly different ways. But there's nothing wrong with having another go at that plot line. But 
Again, what what, um, what they do with that in the in the original film is they say, well, this is a poor area and people are easily exploited. And when Carter finds out about it, he takes a terrible revenge. You don't really get you don't get one thing or the other of that in this. Stallone doesn't really like take a terrible revenge on the people involved, and it sort of soft pedals the kind of you know nature of the of the of the the crime uh, that's being committed. Um, so there's not the social aspect and and. What they would probably have been better doing is actually saying, he, he goes, you know, make, making a film where Stallone is some sort of monster who, who comes across this, and this is across his line. This, You know, he's a gangster, and there's a lot of things that he's not above doing, but this is a moral code that he won't break, and this is the fight he gets into. I could see Stallone making that movie, but they would have to jettison all the kind of original stuff, because it doesn't do them any good. There's a scene in this where um, uh, Rachel Lee Cook's character talks about what she's been through, and I, I don't know about you, mate, but I, I thought that that's so out of keeping with the rest of the film. You know, Stallone sits and listens to someone, a victim who's been through a trauma, and he's. And to be fair to him, I think Stallone plays it quite well, and she plays it quite well, where he's kind of, uh, you know, sympathetic and listens to her and says it's not your fault, and all of those things are right, but that just it doesn't fit with this film. I think they they should have done that film, but they weren't. They were kind of doing an attempt to get Carter, and they dropped this in and went, oh, that's not, you know, it it. it they would have been better off trying to do that. There's been yeah. good, there's been good films about that exploitation. Mona Lisa, which also has Michael Caine, is a good example. Um, but they crowbar it in into an otherwise lackluster and watered down version of a completely different film. So um, it's uh, I, I mean it, it didn't come as a massive surprise to me. That this is how the film ended up because you know this is what happens. You get these kind of watered down, less you know just less exciting versions of it. I think the key thing, the most controversial thing, and I discussing this could ruin the ending of the original film for people, so I don't want to say too much. The ending of the original film is really, really bleak, both in terms of narrative, but also in the style that it happens. Because bear in mind, you know, there's lots of opportunities to shoot on kind of a, a declining industrial wasteland up in the northeast of England. And the ending of this film is a completely nothing ending. It's like, eh, you know. Off he, off he rides into the sunset. It's like, that is such a nothing ending, you know? A bit of a cop-out. Yeah, it's like, yeah, he's probably in a bit of trouble with his bosses in Vegas. Where's he going to go? I don't know. He's going to drive off somewhere. It's like, it was, um, I mean, like one of the one of the people said, it wasn't, it's by no means his worst film, and it's got a couple of good moments, and uh, Mickey Rourke makes things watchable. You know, it's just, it's just such a disappointing come down from, an original film that, first of all, did it first and did it better, but second of all, completely committed to the kind of film that it was making, whereas this was a bit of a, a wishy-washy attempt. A really good example is there's a there's a line in the first film, uh, and it's reproduced in the second film. Michael Caine has got some older man who's trying to threaten him, and he goes, you're a big man, but you're out of shape. For me, it's a full-time job, so behave yourself. And Michael Caine does it the Michael Caine way, and it's... It's one of the. It, it, there are moments in the film where Michael Caine has some great lines. It's not light, but he's kind of got some brilliant. Like there's a bit where he goes into the pub and, and wants a pint of lager in a straight glass, and this shocks people from the northeast of England because they're all drinking ale in kind of you know, those glass, you know, glasses with handles. Um, but there's none of that here. Stallone gives the same speech, and it's a bit like really that's almost too low key for its own good. And I think that was almost it was the epitome of of why this film didn't work is that that line is 
perfectly delivered in the, the original film and in this film they've only got it in there because it's they went oh we can't not do that line because that's like a key line from the first film how should we do it oh I don't know just kind of do it and it <laughs> was so um, so underwhelming um, and there's car chases in this there's shootouts there's you know fights in kitchens where you know people are getting their heads like dragged on shelves all stuff that you know and it was all all quite tame even though it's R-rated and you see blood and language, it just ended up being a bit kind of... The only bits that I thought were good in this film is I thought the actual scenes where the girls are being exploited by these like, evil pornographers and the impact on them, I thought that was quite good. And that was the... There's two, there's two disappointments in this film. One, that they did a weak-ass remake of the first film, and two, was that they had a couple of things in their hands there that could have made a better film and that they didn't go through with it. Yeah, no, it's it, it's strange because they did have a good cast. And I genuinely think it's got to be down to the screenplay and the directing. Mm-hmm. But it's weird because it's written by David McKenna, who worked on American History X, which is a very kind of dark, you know, bleak film. Um, he also he went on to do Blow after this with um. Johnny Depp. In, Johnny Depp, yeah. And There's a couple of reasons things like that happen. Sometimes people only have one good film in them. I mean, Brian Singer is a good example of that. Um, and sometimes, uh, uh, you know, scripts get written that then get like horribly compromised. I mean, it could be that they said, "Oh, we, you know, it's not." May, it, you know, sometimes a screenwriter says, "I want to, I, I want to do a, a remake of something," and they and they start out and they have an idea for it, like. Um, uh, Steve McQueen Widows, it's quite possible that the studio said, we want to do a remake of Get Carter, for whatever reason. And they hired David McKenna to do it, and he went, oh, well, I don't really I don't really fancy this, but it's work, right? It's money in the bank, so I'll do it. So often, the, 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 the starting point of it leads to, like, a pretty unenthusiastic outcome. And even if he did a good job, it could then go through ten. Oh, we don't want you know, we don't want that character that to happen to that character. You know, Stallone doesn't like that sort of thing. We better take that out. And there could have been, you know, that these films are often kind of put together by committee, and anything remotely interesting gets kind of squeezed out of it long before they even like switch the cameras on. You know. Yeah, I do. I do wonder because what you what would you do to this film to make it right? Um, um, I, I would have I would have said um, don't try and do a, 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 a straight ahead remake of Get Carter. Uh, you, you, if you want some sort of plot device that takes Stallone's character to a place that's not um, you know where he's from that he's kind of gone, gone far away from, come up with whatever, whatever that is. Um, whether you might you might do that, you might, he might move, he might be on the run, whatever the reason is, he ends up somewhere else, uh, and when he gets there, he encounters. You know this exploitation of women by these kind of you know pornographers, date rape, drugs, and all of that, and he decides he's had enough of that. It could happen to someone that's close to him that he cares about. He could just decide that he's had enough of it, and you can actually tell the story of that and how that works and how those people are treated. I would have picked a more interesting setting. I mean, fuck Seattle, man. Who gives a shit about Seattle? It's one of those kind of minor. You know, there might be something interesting about Seattle, but we didn't see it in that movie, right? Um, certainly, I mean, America's got more interesting places than that to uh, to do that. Maybe go to the deep south, or maybe go somewhere else. You know the, you know the, you know the Ozark Mountains or the Appalachians, wherever, somewhere more interesting. Something that makes him much more of a fish out of water, and actually go into the subject of child exploitation. I mean, I will go back to Mona Lisa. I'm not suggesting they remake Mona Lisa instead, but 
that film really goes into like the seedy kind of world of like you know sort of illegal prostitution in London in the eighties, and shows what it's like and how those women are treated. And at the end of it, you kind of you know when uh, when Bob Hoskins, who's the main character, does something about it, you really feel like he's gone on a you know you know you, you're really with him at the end because however you feel about him as a character, he's you know they've taken you down the point where yeah, there's something that's got to be done now, and then Bob Hoskins does it. I I I think. I think the flicker of light, the glimmer of light in this film was like the way Rachel Lee Cook, she's quite good in this, and the way she was treated, that's your movie. And put put makes Stallone a bit more of a fish out of water because, you know, he's, he's done films like that where he turns up and he's like, who the fuck is this guy? You know, he's, he's like very New York and he's very whatever and he turns up in a in a completely different setting. He can do that. Um, that would be that would be how it would work for me. A far, a far more interesting place for him to end up in and, and commit more to the actual central storyline because that stuff about Alan Cumming as the dot com millionaire who gives a shit? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and, and Mickey Rourke. I mean, have Mickey Rourke in a movie. I always think you should have Mickey Rourke in a movie, but that, the character that he was given to play is just another fucking like baddie to to you know to have a fight with. So really, I think they they could, they should have committed more to that that bit of the story that ended up being interesting. Yeah, no, I agree. I just, it's really just a case of, uh, it's weird because it's it's a remake hate watch, but it didn't even feel like a proper remake. You know what I mean? Like, it just felt like they'd gone, oh, well, Michael Caine made a good film back in the day. Why don't we just kind of make a film where it's the same plot, but it had, like, nothing in common apart from that one line that they copied? It's, yeah, it felt it's, like there was it was two totally different, like, worlds. It wasn't even like, it, like, I know it is a, a remake, but... Yeah, it is. It's, it is kind of like what, like what they did with the Italian job, where the remake, in a sense, it was a very kind of superficial similarity to the original film, and uh, anything they did was from the original film. They did. They did have a fair amount of the plot, but they just didn't have any of the style or vibe or anything. Yeah, it was very superficial. going to take an intermission now sorry for interrupting the flow the second reel of the podcast is available to download now and we hope you will rejoin us soon for the exciting conclusion of this month's episode when you do we'll be taking on the big conversation which this month poses the question how true are films based on true stories that's all for the first reel of this month's episode this podcast is edited on audacity and hosted on anchor fm and we are grateful for their continued support the music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin McLeod. We'll give you a full set of credits at the end of Reel 2 of the episode, including info on the films and topics we discussed. Look forward to joining you for the second Reel soon. See you on the other side. Dirty. <laughs> We, we don't judge. <laughs>